0: Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And daughter, do you Hi, Phoebe.
1: Hello, Dad. How are you?
0: I'm, I'm good. I'm fine, thank you. I was very impressed with the young Toby at the weekend doing his 5K run for cancer research.
1: He did so well. He did I really well. Was... And you
0: did as well, running with him.
1: Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was genuinely impressed that we both made it round. To be perfectly honest with you, uh, <laughs> but we uh, he uh, he did so well. I was fully expecting after a little bit for him to be like, no, I'm done. Um, yeah, but no, he so
0: He had loads of energy, didn't he? And he wasn't yeah, he did, lagging yeah. behind. He was yeah. um, he was really going for it. Yeah, well done. He raised over three hundred pounds, I think. He, he did, and, yeah,
1: uh, three hundred and fifty with gift aid. So brilliant. Uh, yeah. Thank you, everyone who who donated for him. And he was he was tough for that. I was like, if we can raise a hundred quid, that'll be a wonderful yeah. thing to do, wouldn't it? So no, I was we were we were already impressed with how much he raised. So thank you, everyone who donated.
0: Yeah, and he's just his whole attitude to it was amazing. And at the end of it, he was just
1: yeah, it was fine. <laughs> done yeah. that. Bless him. I was really pleased that we were able to do it together.
0: Yeah, excellent. Well done. Hopefully, uh, Otto will be able to do it with him one day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> Yeah, he will Otto would not be hesitant about getting into the mud. No,
0: face first in there. Yeah, Toby wasn't that keen on the mud, was he?
1: No, (laughs) no, but he liked the like more physical ones, like the climbing and the stuff like that. But yeah, he went in a couple of the muddy bits, but he was mostly just like, no, I'll (laughs) I'll just do the climbing things. But that's fine.
0: Yeah, Uh, well done, Toby. Last episode we talked about the Crumbles murders Mm -hmm. and I said that uh, in this episode it will be another murder from the same part of the world, the Crumbles, Pevensey Bay in East Sussex. So, yeah, this one's a little bit longer and I think I said as well it's a bit more gruesome and gory, which it is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so if you're uh, sort of in the habit of Settling down with a glass of wine to listen to this (laughs) podcast, now's a good time to do it. As I tell you about the murder of Emily Kay.
1: Okay.
0: So, first of all, we'll talk a little bit about the perpetrator of the crime and how how they met. Patrick Mahon was born in 1890 in Liverpool to a middle-class Irish family. He was raised in the suburb of West Derby. And as a child, Mahon proved to be an above-average scholar and a talented footballer. Mahon was also a regular attendee at the local Catholic church. Shortly after leaving school, Mahon secured employment as an accounts clerk. He later became a church worker and a Sunday school teacher. And on the 6th of April 1910, so he was just about 20, he married his fiancée, Jessie, who he had first met at school. The couple later went on to have two children. However, in that same year that he was married, 1910, Mahon was arrested for burgling the home of a clergyman. Oh, no. Yeah. Then in 1911, Mahon stole £123 from his employers. He actually That's probably left. quite a lot of money. In- it so- was, yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> That's well, best uh, buy, like £10,000. 10, thou- yeah, probably. Yeah, getting on for. Yeah. yeah. He, he also left his wife, this is before <laughs> they had any children, and ran off to the Isle of Man with another woman. Oh. Uh-huh. However, for the crime of stealing £123 and running away, he was treated with leniency, receiving just a formal caution. And Mahon's wife also forgave him. And he returned to live with her. He's a lucky man. And then, shortly afterwards, they moved to Wiltshire, where he got a job on a dairy farm. Okay. Yeah. So, in 1912, he lost this employment after his employers discovered that he had stolen £60. Oh,
1: nice.
0: So, he's getting a bit of a record now. He's uh, yeah. racking them up. And for this offence, Mahon was imprisoned for one year. Wow. After he was let out, he and his wife relocated to another Wiltshire town called Carn, C-A-L-N-E, which is where they had their two children. Nice. But while oh. living in Carn, Mahon developed a gambling habit. Oh, no. So it's not going very well for him, is it? It's a bit of a wrong, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it is a bit of a wrong. And, and things were about to get worse because in 1916, Patrick Mahon is known to have attempted to murder a servant girl in the Surrey town of Chertsey. Oh,
1: no.
0: The servant girl discovered Mahon burgling her employer's home, whereupon he attacked her with a hammer, striking oh her across the head at least nine times. Oh, my Before God. Before the girl lost consciousness, Mahon demanded from her where the keys to her employer's safe were kept. Mm-mm. Now the girl, the victim of this assault, regained consciousness to find herself being embraced by him, who implored her to forgive him.
1: What? You yeah. <laughs> just, just hit me on the head nine times with the yeah, hammer. Yeah, a hammer.
0: Yeah. Presumably, he didn't actually get into the safe. But anyway, Mohan was brought to trial before Mr Justice Darling for his aggravated assault. Medical testimony at this trial revealed that Mohan had likely intended to kill the young woman. And had she had not such a generous head of hair, she would likely have died of her injuries.
1: Oh, my goodness. Of <laughs> course, image of her having these, like, Princess Leia, like, buns on the top yeah, of her head.
0: Yeah, a well, person might have been a bun on the top of her head. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. It would deflect the a, a, a hammer?
1: I don't know. I've got a bun in tonight. I'm pretty confident <laughs> that's not going to deflect a hammer. Uh,
0: uh, yeah. just It's really well, thick plaits. So there you go.
1: That's impressive. That was the medical
0: testimony of the day. there you go. Mahon appealed for leniency, stating his intentions to join the army. However, he was sentenced to a term of five years of imprisonment with Judge Darling, stating, as he imposes term, I have come to the conclusion that you're not only a burglar, not only a coward, but also a thorough-paced hypocrite. Strong words very strong words so there he was in prison for actually about three years in the end he was released in April 19 and he returned to his wife
1: there you go he managed to get out of the war I'm surprised they didn't like draft him into the trenches that is true yeah he literally like missed the whole war by being in prison
0: so yeah he returned to his wife I mean she must have been very forgiving and I mean two two young kids (laughs) He's
1: going around smashing people around the heads with hammers, making money, gambling.
0: And she was holding down a job because by this stage, she was working as a secretary at a company in Sunbury Thames called Consoles Automatic Aerators Limited. That's impressive. Where Jessie got her husband a job there as a salesman. And the family relocated from Carn in Wiltshire, to the London suburb of Richmond. Nice. Now, a couple of years later, in 1922, Mahon was promoted to the position of sales manager, earning approximately £42 a month. Pretty good. So it is pretty good, yeah. Mahon's duties regularly required him to travel to the City of London, to the offices of Robertson's Hill and Co. in Morgate. During a visit to this firm in August 1923, he encountered a 37-year-old unmarried woman called Emily Bilby Kay, who worked as a shorthand typist and private secretary. Within weeks of their encounter, the two had begun an affair.
1: <gasps> oh, no.
0: Now, Mahon actually introduced himself to Emily K as Derek Patterson, As sort of by way of a false name. And she was just one of several women with whom he was having affairs with throughout the course of his marriage. And it is likely that he started this particular affair when he discovered that Emily had savings of around about £500, which is the equivalent of about £38,500 today. Wow, that's a quite a lot of money. That's a lot bank. of money. Yeah, I mean, he can't of been earning, he wasn't earning bad, was he? Because if 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 he was on forty two pounds a month,
1: I but, know you know because I was reading something else the other day about how much was it sixty quid was about four thousand pounds or something like that. Yeah, so, so he, he,
0: he was on about th- three grand three thousand pounds worth. Yeah. So why? It's not bad to, mm, yeah, <laughs> not bad better all.
1: And he's got this really bad gambling habit. He's got to fund it somehow. Yeah,
0: well, that could be that. Yeah.
1: Maybe he just liked money just wanted his money
0: maybe he did yeah but hmm, it wasn't doing too badly if it was too bad a month but now approximately three months into their affair around sort of november december time 1923 emily discovered to her joy that she was pregnant but in march 24 1924 she became ill with influenza To recuperate, she travelled to the coastal resort of Bournemouth, where she was Lovely. soon joined by Mahon, who presented her with a diamond and sapphire cluster engagement ring re- that he'd just bought from a Southampton jeweller's. Lovely. That night, the two shared a room at the Southwestern Hotel, with Mahon signing the register as Mr. and Mrs. P. H. Mahon, so presumably by now he'd told her that his name wasn't. Eric Patterson.
1: (laughs) You'd assume so. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Him buying this engagement ring seems to have convinced Emily that his claims of his intentions to marry her were sincere. And when she got back to work, Kay informed friends and relatives that she and Mahorn would soon marry and emigrate to South Africa. Telling her company secretary... It's fixed, my dear, the wedding date. Oh. On the 5th of April, Emily wrote a letter to her sister in which she stated that Patrick Mahon had travelled to Langney to inspect a bungalow, with a view to renting the property for several weeks as they finalised their plans to emigrate. Now, Langney is a small place between Eastbourne and Pevensey.
1: Yeah, ah, okay. I looked
0: up on the map and it's just a tiny little area. I guess maybe at the time it was a small village, maybe separated. Yeah. But now it's just part of Eastbourne. I think Eastbourne sort cool. of sprawled a bit over the last hundred years. But if you want to look it up on the map, that's Langney, L-A-N-G-N-E-Y. So you get an idea of where it is. Near the Grumbles.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're, like, just getting further south, aren't they? Like, they're, like they're in Liverpool, and then they were, like, yep. working, and then they're in yep. London, yep. and then they're, they're like, they're just moving down the country.
0: Uh, well, he is, yeah. He well, is, I, yeah. I guess his, his wife is still there in Psst. Richmond at this yes. stage. <laughs> now, remember, she had £500 in savings? Yep. Well, she withdrew £404. <laughs> That's a very specific it? amount. It is a very specific amount, yeah. And a vast amount of this money was either given to Mahon or spent on wedding preparations, or otherwise invested in her plans for the future, which she believed that the two of them had together. Oh, no. According to Mahon, these are sort of um, the story that came out after the fact, shall we say. After Emily informed him of her pregnancy, he became afraid that his wife would yet again discover his infidelity. However, he claimed that Emily had known that he was a married man prior to their affair and that shortly after that she had discovered that she was pregnant, she had insisted on the two embarking on what was termed a love experiment. So this is him telling the story afterwards. So okay. Yeah. So this love experiment <laughs> was where... She hoped to convince him that his resistance to abandoning his wife and children could be overcome if the two spent an extended period of time alone together before they bigamously married. Right. So he's claiming that she said, spend some time with me and you won't worry about having to, well, bigamously marry me.
1: (laughs) Right, okay.
0: Sounds legit. Doesn't it? Yeah. So his, his mind is racing now. We're trying to work out what, what to do. And he basically realised that he had to get out of this because, yeah. So to go along with it, he agreed with this proposal and he convinced her to travel to the Langley Bungalow, which was known as the Officer's House, which is located alongside the Crumbles, which he had rented under the assumed name of Waller. Mr. Waller. 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 Yeah. <laughs> like Rip. I guess, Waller. yeah. Yeah. free <laughs> Waller, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Emily is known to have travelled to Eastbourne on the 7th of April. She stayed for five days at the Kenilworth Court Hotel before travelling to the officer's house on the 12th of April. Having informed his wife that he was going on business for several days... Mahon also travelled to the bungalow on the weekend of the twelfth to thirteenth of April, informing Emily Kay via telegram to meet him at Eastbourne railway station. But before travelling to Eastbourne, Mahon is known to have purchased a ten-inch chef's knife and a tenon saw from an ironmonger's, which is close to Victoria Station in London. Which right, set off from. So bear that in mind. Mm-mm. Easter that year was Good Friday was the eighteenth of April. Okay, so Easter Sunday was the twentieth. That just helps to put it in a bit of context. Okay, there they are, both in this officer's house near the crumbles, near the beach, and on Monday the fourteenth of April, Emily wrote a letter to a friend saying that she and Patrick planned to travel to London the following day so that Mahon could get a passport, presumably, okay. for their um,
1: South emigration Africa to South trip. Africa yep. yep.
0: adding that Patrick in particular wants to get to Paris for Easter and that the two should have about a fortnight in Eastbourne before emigrating to South Africa.
1: As if he get she... a passport that
0: quickly. Well, back in <laughs> 1924... <laughs> Which is where we are now. Perhaps you could, yeah. (laughs) Once they got to London, he changed his mind and they didn't go to the passport office to get a passport. And the couple returned back to Eastbourne.
1: Oh. Well, surely he's going to need his passport to go to Paris and to go to South Africa.
0: Yeah, well, bear in mind that he doesn't really want to go, does he? No. It's all part of this...
1: He just wants her money.
0: (laughs) It's all Well, it's all part of this... um fantasy that she's weaving and that he's not stopping her from creating so that was on tuesday the 15th of april they went to london then came back again and when they got back to the bungalow emily wrote a further letter to her friend and while she was doing that mahon brought in the coal scuttle to the living room so he could light a fire and when emily had finished her letter she turned towards him insisting that he write a letter to his friends, informing them of his decision to relocate to South Africa. Mahon refused, resulting in Kay becoming agitating, stating, Pat, I'm determined to settle this matter one way or the other tonight. Can't you realise, Pat, how much I love you? Mahon then said that he was going to go to bed and go to sleep. And according to his testimony, she then threw an axe at him, missing him. Okay. A scuffle ensued in which each grabbed the other by the throat, the two then fell over a deck chair, with Emily K fatally striking her head on the coal scuttle.
1: Convenient. Yeah. Was she still pregnant at this point?
0: Yeah, yeah. She was yeah, so she would have been
1: Quite pregnant.
0: Five months
1: possibly. Okay.
0: Yeah, was it November time? maybe that she discovered she was pregnant this is april so
1: six maybe even later like how yeah. early did you find out you're pregnant in 1920 well, that's true probably get on for six months pregnant
0: yeah she could have been yeah now according to mahon he did nothing to revive her or indeed i suppose the uh, the unborn child but he says towards daybreak or at daybreak he realized what a fool he had been not to attempt to seek medical assistance He had then covered Kay's body with a fur coat before, on Friday the 18th of April, good Friday, Mm -hmm. severing her head and legs and stowing her body in a travelling trunk, her travelling trunk, as he continued to ponder his predicament.
1: I feel like he's just made it worse for himself by chopping up her body.
0: Yeah, yeah. so he's been sat there with her dead body for a couple of days and now he's wondering what to do. Oh, God. However, <laughs> just literally like a day after he committed this, well, murder, presumably it was a murder because he wanted to get out of this situation that he'd got yeah. himself into. On the, April the 16th, so that was like the, what, the Wednesday? Wednesday? Yeah, Mohan had invited or he'd, he'd, he'd contacted another woman that he had recently become acquainted with called Ethel Duncan, and he invited her to spend the Easter weekend at the bungalow with him. Wow. <laughs> so that would have been like the Easter Saturday, Good Friday the 18th, Easter Saturday yeah. the 19th, and Ethel agreed. And on the following day, so that must, yeah, I guess that's the Thursday, Mahon sent her a telegraphic order for £4, pounds, so presumably to pay for a ticket, with instructions asking her to meet him at Eastbourne Railway Station the following evening. Right. So on Good Friday, the 18th of April, at around 10 to 8, she was waiting at the station when he arrived to pick her up. She noted that his wrist was bandaged, and Mahon claimed that this was a result of his saving a lady from falling off a bus that morning. That's good of him. Yes, <laughs> Bearing in mind that um, there's bits of Emily's body in the house, it uh, I, I, it's, yeah, it's a bit weird, this bit, because basically him and Ethel then spent three days at the officer's house, bungalow, with them sort of going out, eating out every night in lavish restaurants, and they even went up to London, to the London Palladium,
1: Oh wow! Okay.
0: <laughs> so I don't know where the body was during all of this time. We know bits it's in of the it. trunk. Some of it was in the trunk. Yeah. Well, yeah. But the two-party company on Easter Monday, whereupon Patrick Mahon returned to the officer's house, where he proceeded to carry on dismembering the body. Oh. So how this other woman didn't know that there was a dead body there. Yeah. What did he think he was doing? Uh, there's a few questions there.
1: Yeah, and also the body's going to be grim if it's been in that house for getting on for a week.
0: Yeah, well, if it was the Tuesday night that yeah. um, after they got back from their trip to not get a passport. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and now we're looking at Easter Monday. Yeah. So over the next few days, Emily Kaye's body was extensively dismembered. Her head, feet and legs were incinerated in the fireplace of the bungalow on the 22nd of April before Mahon swept the charred skull and bone fragments into a dustpan. He later pulverised these into tremendously small fragments which he claimed to have discarded over the garden wall of the officer's house. Wow. No sections of Kaye's skull were ever recovered although a section of her jawbone and several of her teeth were later recovered from a refuse heap. Oh, wow. There then seems to be a bit of a gap in proceedings. So, I don't know, maybe he went back to his wife? I, I don't know. Okay. Bear in mind, he had this rental agreement for several weeks on this bungalow. Yeah. But we know that he went back to the bungalow, uh, in sort of Eastbourne Peminsy, on Saturday the 26th of April. Right where he continued dismembering her body. He first severed the arms from the torso before dismembering the trunk of her body. Some sections of her body were boiled, and these elements were then placed in a brown paper bag, which Mahon later threw from the window of the railway train while he was travelling back home to Richmond. Oh my God! So, how was he found out? How was he found (laughs) out? Well, in the years since Mahon's 1919 release from prison, Mm. remember after he'd been in there for a few years for nearly killing that other woman with a hammer whose hair saved her? Yeah. His wife had grown increasingly suspicious of the extended periods of time Mahon spent away from home. Okay, good. Often, often under the excuse of it being a business trip. Okay. Now, suspecting that her husband was again conducting an affair and or going off gambling all their money away or whatever, on the 30th of April, Jessie Mahon hired a detective inspector named John Beard to investigate her husband. So if that's like Wait, a why? private a private detective almost, yeah. just to find out what was going on. Because he had been away for quite a long time yeah. this, this April, one way or another. Now is
1: it, it's two ladies in Eastbourne. So. Well,
0: two ladies, yeah. I mean, one of them,
1: one of them, one of them merging, one of them dismembering, all, one of them.
0: Almost fucking
1: forth to London.
0: Almost marrying one and uh, an emigrating. To <laughs> yes, South Africa. Africa via Paris. Jessie was searching through the pocket of one of her husband's suits. This is in early May, so just mm-hmm. a couple of days after he'd finished dismembering Emily. Jessie discovered a race card. So, presumably from a race, race. course or, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and a left luggage ticket, which was dated the 28th of April, for a bag currently being held at Waterloo Station. Okay, so she told Detective Inspector John Beard about this, and the two went to Waterloo to inspect this bag, which, although it was locked, I guess they. Forced it open (laughs) and it was found to contain a large knife and blood-stained cloth. Oh, wow. Beard persuaded Jessie to return the ticket to her husband's suit before he contacted Scotland Yard to report the discovery. So introducing Inspector Percy Savage of the Yard, who extracted a small sample of cloth from this bag, which then underwent forensic analysis. Okay. Which even I suppose a hundred years ago was uh, well was a developing science. It's constantly a developing science, I'm sure, but uh, yeah. yeah. But even then they could tell that the sample contained traces of human blood. Okay. And two undercover policemen were then deployed to the station with instructions to arrest Mahon when he arrived to collect the bag. Cool. A couple of days later, Mahon was arrested when he arrived at Waterloo Station and attempted to pay the five pence to retrieve the bag. Confirming that it was his property, Mahon was escorted to Kennington Police Station to await the arrival of Inspector Savage. He was then taken to Scotland Yard both for interrogation and in order that the contents of his bag could be inspected. When it was opened, the contents were revealed to be female clothing and a cook's knife all of which were heavily stained with blood and grease and sprinkled with disinfectant.
1: Why did he check that into the train station?
0: Trying to figure out how he was going to get rid of it?
1: Everything else, he got like her body, he got rid of so meticulously. It just seems so weird that he would just make, he'd just put it in a station. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well. well, hmm. Now, there was also a canvas racket bag bearing Emily Kay's initials. In the bag as well.
1: Ah, okay.
0: Now, question as to why the contents, including a knife and clothing, were heavily stained with blood, Mohan stated, I'm fond of dogs. I suppose I carried home meat for our pet dogs in it. In response, Inspector Savage replied, Dogs meat, but this is human blood. You don't wrap dogs meat in silk. Your explanation does not satisfy me. So, although initially evasive in response to how these blood-stained items came to be in his possession, after several hours of questioning, Patrick Mahon suddenly became very silent after remarking, I am considering my position.
1: Mm -mm.
0: He was then silent for about a quarter of an hour before stating, I suppose you know everything. I will tell you the truth. Oh, wow. He then proceeded to confess to his role in Emily Kay's death which he claimed had been accidental, having been caused when, in the course of a scuffle, the two had fallen over the deck chair, with Kay hitting her head against the iron coal scuttle. Yep. And he went on to say that her body could be found at the bungalow that he had rented in Eastbourne, which is okay. kind of true, as we'll see in a minute. According to Mahon's testimony, for several hours he unsuccessfully attempted to revive Kay before deciding to dismember her body with a blunt knife from the kitchen at the bungalow. He then claimed to have purchased the chef's knife and tenon saw in London before returning to the officer's house where, on the 26th of April, he had begun to dismember and dispose of her body. Yeah. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah. Mahon claimed to have ultimately decided to dispose of the dissected portions by discarding them throughout the windows of railway carriages and he successfully disposed of some sections of emily's legs in this manner he had intended to dispose of the contents of the bag which is the one at the station um, in the same manner after but he'd been arrested before he could do that so right okay I guess his idea was he'd pick up the bag, get on a train and throw it out the window or something. Makes but, sense. Yeah, you'd still find it, wouldn't you? Just along the yeah. railway track.
1: But so I guess if there, was, there wasn't anything to like link it back to him. No, the, maybe not. On the railway
0: track. No, that's true. Yeah. After they heard Mahon's confession, investigators travelled to Sussex. Having liaised with their counterparts within the East Sussex Constabulary, police travelled to the officer's house And the same day, sections of Kay's putrefied and dismembered body were found within the travelling trunk, which was still there in the house, which were engraved with her initials. It was her travelling trunk. Inspector Savage placed the trunk in the scullery of the property, don't know why, before contacting Scotland Yard. Forensic pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury, that's a name I think we've heard before.
1: That name did you about, yeah?
0: Yeah, travelled to Eastbourne on the 4th of May to assist in the recovery and examination of the remains. Now, in the bedroom of the bungalow, investigators found a rusty and greasy tenon saw with a wow. section of flesh still attached. Ooh. Plus numerous articles of blood-stained female clothing and a blood-stained tea towel. A saucer mm-hmm. containing solid human fat was discovered on the floor of the dining room and wow. a two-gallon saucepan containing a section of boiled flesh was found in the fireplace of the room. So how Ethel Duncan had been staying in this every yeah. weekend with bits of body. I mean, I know she, she he hadn't done all the dissecting and boiling and burning at that point, but she would have still been in the house. It's the Yeah. Bit that.
1: But if she was like stowed away in the trunk
0: yeah i don't know how big this bungalow was it, it, it could have been quite large and yeah if most of it was in the trunk or
1: yeah i mean we've but got yeah. a big traveling trunk in our sitting room no one ever goes yeah, there. yeah
0: that's true all in there. <laughs> yeah and i guess oh, if yeah. it's
1: like someone you've only just started like seeing you wouldn't just go into the house and start
0: <laughs> <going to laughs> so wouldn't you say good lord what is that terrible smell
1: but she probably didn't um, start she probably wasn't maybe smelling not. just yet maybe not and those trunks are generally like, were like, lead-lined, weren't they? Like, painted like lead Yeah, I, I, I stuff, suppose they so. could have
0: been, yeah. Yeah, could have been quite a good seal on them. Back at the bungalow, the surround of the fireplace was also spattered with body fat. Oh. And an examination of the ashes in the fireplace revealed over 900 small, charred fragments of human bone. He did say oh, he wow. pulverised them. Yeah. Didn't he? <laughs> A hat box recovered from the scullery was found to contain 37 sections of boiled human flesh, muscle and bone, including a scapula, a vertebrae and a humerus. Each bone had evidently been severed with a saw, but there was no trace of her uterus found.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
0: So what happened to that and the unborn baby, which would have been several months... Don't know. There's mm. no. There's no mention of that in here. So
1: he probably could have got rid of that relatively easy on the fire. Yeah,
0: on the fire, or maybe some one of the parts that was thrown out the train window. Or yeah, something.
1: maybe mm. inside
0: the travelling trunk, spills, we discovered four large sections of Kay's body, including her lower left abdomen and pelvis, a section of her spine, the right section of her torso with the upper portion of her femur still attached. A portion of the right side of her chest, including the majority of her entire ribcage, oh and God. the left section of Emily Kaye's chest, which we noted, had been extensively bruised around the shoulder. Mm, okay. Several organs, including a portion of her right lung and sections of her kidneys, were attached to the wall of the trunk. Nice.
1: Other wow. organs,
0: <laughs> including her heart, were recovered from a biscuit tin. Furthermore, the doorway and carpet of the living room were heavily bloodstained. Yeah. Each item was catalogued and removed to Spillsbury's London Laboratory for reassembly.
1: Oh, my God. He really, like, mean... spread her around, hadn't
0: he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, they never got the bits that were thrown out of the... No. Well, maybe they did. I don't know. Well, but
1: the bits of skull and teeth and stuff that were chucked over the wall that were smashed down. and.
0: yeah. During the reassembling of these sections of her body at the mortuary, Spilsbury discovered some sections of her body had been boiled, others burnt, and although Spilsbury was able to reconstruct the recovered sections of her body, as her head was not recovered, he was unable to determine the actual cause of death, although he was able to conclude that she had not died as a result of disease. Okay. Furthermore, but, Yeah, by... that's
1: probably quite obvious, isn't it? She was <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> chopped up into lots of different bits.
0: So yeah. she was quite healthy. Probably wasn't a natural <laughs> death, was it? <laughs> the bits were quite healthy, but um, okay. that's not what she died of. Furthermore, no. by examining... Well, yeah, I, I know was her, her death was probably not natural. No. Yeah.
1: No, she didn't die and then wasn't chopped up. It was doing totally yeah. something.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Furthermore, by examining her breasts and the one ovary recovered... Spielsby was able to determine that she had been in the early stages of pregnancy at the time right. of the murder. So it says early stages there, but we think it might be four or five months. But on the 6th of May, Mahon was formally charged with Emily Kay's murder. He responded to this charge by stating, I've already made my statement. It wasn't murder, as my statement clearly shows. So yeah, but he still her up. Well, he did, yeah. He, so, <laughs> I guess he, came, he panicked. He didn't know what to do.
1: You know, I've heard that um, so many times. So many people said that. Like, Didn't Jeffrey Dahmer say that? Like, he killed someone and he panicked and didn't know what to do, so he chopped them up. It's like, yeah. I'm pretty confident that's not where my panic would go to, like, yeah, oh my God, I've killed someone accidentally. Like, I'm going to chop them into pieces.
0: It can only make things worse. Can't yeah.
1: It? Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
0: If you've got a whole body there without, yeah. You, you, but the chopping up is definitely. <laughs> Yeah. wrong it? So, like what what are you trying to achieve by chopping it you, yeah, up because, it just spreads the evidence so Yeah, so exactly. more evidence yeah and
1: like you could never get rid of all the blood ever like no. some trace of that blood would be even if you did it like in the bath they would they could find it in the pipes
0: yeah yeah it would never be, be
1: yeah. like you could never fully hide a body by chopping it up why would you just well, put yourself through that
0: Unless some people have done it successfully, we well that's never true. Know. We don't <laughs> know about it. That's true.
1: Yeah, you don't hear about the people who uh, get, away get away with, with it. it. But I just, but yeah, it does. seem That's just a very... not where my head would go. Like, oh my god, I accidentally killed someone. I know but you I'm can't. Chop
0: them up. I suppose though, once you started, you can't unchop them up, can you? No. See, so you're left with no. all this, but yeah, boiling and burning and pulverising and oh, such a mess.
1: I mean, and, literally like, a mess, and it, it seems so gratuitous. Like it's not like he just chopped her up and then chucked bits of her body in bins or whatever. Like the fact that he was, you know, he yeah, put some of it in the fire. Room. He boiled some of it. He burned some of it. He smashed down bits of it. Like he hid bits of it in different places. He threw some. Like he was, he was enjoying that, wasn't he? Like he was getting something out of that.
0: I he had real rage or hate against her, or maybe it was hate about himself that he was taking out on her.
1: There was something going on there that's... It's like overkill, isn't it? It's like over...
0: Definitely, yeah. Over, overkill. Yeah, it is. A trial date was set for the 15th of July. So, pretty quick. Yeah. The trial of Patrick Mahon for the murder of Emily Kay began before Mr Justice Avery at Sussex Assizes on the 15th of July, 1924. He pleaded not guilty to the charge... Sir Henry curtis-bennett was the chief prosecutor and mahon was defended by j d cassells in the opening statement on behalf of the crown henry curtis-bennett outlined the prosecution's case against the accused alleging mahon had embarked on an affair with kay for the sole purpose of robbing her of her savings adding that records to be introduced into evidence would reveal that mahon had received four separate payments of a hundred pounds from kay in the months before her murder, and that he had cashed at least three of these payments under the alias of Derek Patterson, Mm -hmm. that original name that uh, he came up with. The prosecutor further stated that Kay's murder had been clearly premeditated, as, contrary to Mahon's claims, testimony and evidence would be introduced, proving that he had encouraged Kay to state to acquaintances that she and Derek Patterson would soon emigrate to South Africa and that he had purchased the chef's knives and tennis saw used to dismember her body on the 12th of April, contrary to the claims that he'd made to the police that he'd bought them after her death. So remember, he okay. said he bought yeah. them afterwards, uh, but, yeah. but there was evidence um, of him buying them before. Yeah, that we know that there was an invoice that uh, we talk about in a moment that's produced to prove that he bought them before the murder bernard spilsbury testified on the third day of mahon's trial he supported the prosecution's contention that emily k could not have sustained any fatal injuries from falling on the coal scuttle dismissing mahon's claim that k's death had been accidental as preposterous spilsbury testified the extensive bruising on one of her shoulders that he was able to see when he reconstructed her Led him to suspect that he had bludgeoned Emily Kay to death with an axe handle or something similar, which is known to be missing from the bungalow,
1: Uh, and which,
0: along with her skull, was never found. So maybe her head was smashed in with an axe.
1: Yeah, or maybe the sort of rage and anger he apparently chopped her body up with. Yeah, maybe he like totally obliterated her head with an axe
0: yeah maybe That's he did he yeah burnt and it, was, it
1: and got rid of
0: it because it was never found yeah it. and yeah. it was pulver- well it was pulverised wasn't yeah. it was one of the 900 pieces of bone yeah well I'm sure brain and eyes and tongue oh, and that stuff well
1: if they if you put it in the fire it would just like burn I suppose
0: yeah smell Ugh. Spielsby further stated that, contrary to Mahon's claim that Kay had thrown an axe at him prior to the scuffle, there was no evidence of that because no walls, doors, door frames, anything in the bungalow bore any evidence of having been hit by an axe. Yeah, Okay. Maybe this was a big mistake, but Mahon chose to testify in his own defence on the 17th of July. He would testify for over five hours emphatically denying Kay's death had been an act of murder he insisted wow. that he had not rented the bungalow as a means of providing privacy where he would murder her but that he had rented the property for two months as a means of maintaining his affair with her with a view to later bringing his wife to the property
1: oh wow okay it's
0: <laughs> very cunning it's so devised.
1: complicated <laughs>
0: He claimed Emily K s death had been accidental, having been the culmination of a heated argument in which he had seen red after she had thrown the axe at him before the two had grappled and K had fatally struck her head. He admitted purchasing the chef's knife and the tennis saw with which he had dismembered her body, but insisted he had only bought these after her death. Repeating his claim that Emily k s death had been accidental, Mahon collapsed in the dock. Oh, no. The drama in the trial. So the next day, Sir Henry Curtis Bennett cross-examined Mahon, who remained adamant that the decision to rent the house had been Emily Kay's as a means for her to prove her love for him. And he had only agreed to the suggestion as a means of proving to her that she could not possibly keep or expect to keep his affections as he wished to remain faithful to his wife. Right. Yeah, here we go again. <laughs> but he was unable to produce a satisfactory explanation as to why he had rented the property under an assumed name or why he had embarked upon the affair using an alias. Directing questions about the date that Mahon had purchased the chef's knife and tennis saw, Mahon insisted the items had been bought on the 17th of April. But in response, Curtis Bennett produced an invoice proving the items had been purchased on the 12th of April. When questioned as to why he had embarked on an affair with Kay, Mahon claimed that, although Emily Kay had known he had been married, she had insisted they embark on an affair, and he quickly realised her intentions to replace his wife. So, both prosecution and defence attorneys delivered their closing arguments before the jury on the 19th of July, and in his closing argument before the jury, Mahon's defence counsel made no attempt to deny Mahon's infidelity or his intimacy with Emily K. His defence also implored the jury to consider Patrick Mahon's claims of accidental death, stating, Have you before you an inhuman monster or a man who is the victim of a most extraordinary combination of circumstances? Prosecutor Sir Henry Curtis Bennett, outlined the ample evidence of premeditation stating the motive for Mahon embarking on the affair had been to rob Kay of her savings. Outlining the many inconsistencies in Mahon's account of the crime, Curtis Bennett further contended Kay's murder had been motivated by a necessity to silence her. Yeah. Yeah, he just wanted to shut her uh, up, didn't he? I'd probably believe that. (laughs) So in the final address to the jury on the 19th of July, Mr Justice Avery, who was the judge, informed the panel of the evidence presented and the options that they should consider. The jury then retired to consider their verdict. They debated for 45 minutes before finding Mahon guilty of Emily K's murder. Upon hearing the jury's verdict, Mahon denounced the bitterness and unfairness of Mr Justice Avery's conduct again insisting he was not guilty of murder. In formally passing the death sentence against Patrick Mahon, Mr. Justice Avery stated, Patrick Herbert Mahon, the jury have arrived at the only proper conclusion on the evidence that was laid before them. They have arrived at the conclusion without knowing anything of your past life. There can be no question that you deliberately designed the death of this woman. For that crime, you must suffer the penalty imposed by the law. The sentence of the court upon you is that you be taken from this place to a lawful prison, and then to a place of execution, and that there you be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and that your body be afterward buried in the precincts of the prison, wherein you shall have been last confined before your execution. And may the Lord have mercy on your soul oh wow be horrible to hear that wouldn't it being said to you yeah
1: yeah
0: (laughs) in august 1924 so about a month later or a few weeks later mahon filed an appeal against his conviction his appeal contended that the jury had been misdirected by the judge who had failed to sufficiently instruct the panel to consider the possibility of emily k's death having been accidental and that the judge had also wrongly informed the jury that Mahon had admitted that Emily Kay had died at his hands. Okay. So I suppose if he never said that, if he's never confessed to that, and yeah. then the judge actually said, well, he did say it, then I suppose there is a bit of dodginess there, isn't there?
1: Yeah. But I guess if he said, oh, they had a fight and she ended up hitting her head, that sort of he's sort of saying that it was his fault that hmm. they, I don't know. But, yeah, no, the judge probably should be implicated in like that.
0: Shouldn't make up things, should he, the judge? No,
1: no. It's probably the number one rule of being a judge, isn't it?
0: <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, this appeal was rejected by the Lord Chief Justice on the 19th of August. Mahon was hanged for Emily Kaye's murder in Wandsworth Prison on the 5th of September 1924. He protested his innocence to the end and is known to have embarked on a hunger strike following his conviction, also writing several letters leaving instructions that they should not be opened until after his death. Don't know what those letters said. Okay. Don't know what his wife was thinking about all of this.
1: Let's say he didn't kill her. Mm. Let's say she just dropped dead. Fine. But he still chopped her up and yeah. like was trying to dispose of her body. And surely that's still quite a horrific... Yeah. crime to have committed
0: yeah it is whether well, that it is so if you just found a dead body and you then chopped it up i'm not sure that you would um
1: get the death penalty,
0: get the death penalty for that mm. but um i mean that's what a jury's is there there m- isn't it to... there's, there's <laughs> more much more evidence so isn't there
1: yeah um,
0: yeah
1: i mean look but... at his like kind of previous convictions <clears throat> the whole complicated well, Messiness the fact she was
0: she was writing to her friends saying that this is what the plans are and yeah, presumably those letters existed and yeah. could have been used in evidence. Well, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it did it.
0: I don't think there's much doubt about that.
1: No.
0: <laughs> News reports at the time indicate that Mahon walked stoically to the scaffold without uttering a word. However... Anecdotal accounts suggest that he offered resistance when he was on the scaffold, apparently attempting to jump clear of the trapdoor at the precise moment that the lever was pulled. But <laughs> the, um, from what
1: from, from what we've said, I'd be inclined to go with the latter. <laughs> yeah,
0: probably. He he didn't want to go easily, did he?
1: Face up to his uh, crimes.
0: No. So this case did leave a few legacies in the way that murders were handled from that point on okay as it facilitated the improvement of forensic procedures for police and yeah law enforcement personnel across the united kingdom in response to this particular murder case the police introduced the creation of something which is now referred to as the murder bag okay which was used from 1924 onwards by the metropolitan police yeah, when investigating crime scenes. Basically, cool. uh, yeah, according to Inspector Percy Savage, when Sir Bernard Spilsby arrived at the officer's house, he'd been quite horrified at the lack of methods used by the police to right. preserve the forensic evidence and prevent infection. Ah, uh, okay. So with the assistance of both Spilsby and uh, someone called Dr Scott Gillett, Dr. Scott. (laughs) Inspector Savage compiled a list of necessary items that needed to be included in the murder bag to be brought to any future crime scenes, similar crime scenes by the police. That's cool. And then, yeah, that was adopted across the country. And I guess to a certain extent it is still now. Um, Somewhere I read as well, like the police, when they were sort of finding all these bits of body, they didn't have gloves or anything. They were literally (laughs) having to pick up these bits and Well, maybe they shouldn't have been touching them, as Spielsby pointed yeah. out, but they were with their bare hands, basically. Yeah, okay. Uh, or, or when they moved the bits out so they could be sent back to the malt tree. Yeah. That's wrong on a quite bit. a lot of levels, isn't it? Yeah. So I think that's why they realised, yeah, we need to have at least gloves. <laughs> yeah. Maybe body yeah. bags. I don't know. Maybe that's the start of that sort of thing. So, yes, it, um, it's pretty gruesome. Quite a long story. Yeah. So I hope you're still with us. <laughs>
1: yeah, that was interesting.
0: Yeah, and there are some pictures. There's some pictures of various aspects of this story. Cool. None of the aftermath, you'll be pleased to hear, but there are yeah. pictures of the people in Concerned and some of the places. So,
1: Oh, that'd be good to see.
0: Yeah. I will put them on our Facebook page.
1: Dad and Daughter do Death.
0: And on our Instagram page.
1: At dad and daughter do death.
0: And if you'd like to contact us to talk about this or any other of the stories we've covered, you can always email us
1: dadanddaughterdo death at gmail dot com.
0: Thank you very much for listening.
1: Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for that um very interesting story. <laughs>
0: um
1: and very gory story as well. It's been a while since you've had a proper gory one. Yeah, so, um, yeah. yeah.
0: Gory one from the nineteen twenties.
1: There you go. Really cool. Boxes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not much involvement of the beach itself, other than it was there. That was the Ford eastbourne train station. Yeah. <laughs> but um, nevertheless, it was literally a, a pebble's throw from where the other story that we yeah spoke about last week took place.
1: Go. And there's lots of pebbles to throw down well, there.
0: there. There are along that beach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well thank you very much. You're very welcome. Join us next time we're once again Dad
1: and daughter do you death.